Uh, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in a series where we're looking at uh, the topic of worship. And we've been working our way through the Old Testament, now into the New Testament. We've looked, uh, traced the theme of worship all through the, the Old Testament, looking at the tabernacle of Moses, the temple, looking at the exile and the return, and even moving into the New Testament, looking at what Jesus has to say on worship, and Paul last week on worship. Tonight we're looking at the Apostle Peter, and, and what does he contribute to our understanding of worship? And I'm very excited about tonight's message from 1 Peter 2, and I believe that what I'm going to share with you tonight has the potential to have a profound impact on your faith and your Christian life for the rest of your life. And I don't say things like that very often because I'm not a big like overhype things kind of guy. But I, I, I do believe it. I do mean it. And so as we work our way through this passage in 1 Peter 2, I want to encourage you to really lean in and, and give thought and reflection uh, to what uh, he's teaching us here. And we're actually going to spend two weeks in this passage because there's, there's so much in here that I, I want to draw out for us that is so foundational to our understanding about what it means to worship God as a part of the new covenant people of God. And so let's read this passage. We're focusing in on the, this first 12 verses of, of first, first, how many times am I going to say Timothy? First Peter 2. Just, just from now on, if I say Timothy, you understand it's Peter for the rest of uh, the evening tonight. But first Peter chapter 2, we're looking at these first 12 verses. Let's, I'll read them and then uh, we'll work our way through them tonight. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like, a, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies or praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us tonight. Lord, as we work through this incredible passage on worship and offering you spiritual sacrifices, Lord, that you would help me to communicate your word and that you would speak, Lord, to our hearts and that you would give us eyes to see and uh, what you want us to see and ears to hear what it is you want us to hear this evening. Lord, I pray that you would even speak to uh, the, the children who are here tonight, that you would give them a, an understanding and a revelation, and that you would, in all of our lives, press your word deep down, that it might bear good fruit and fruit that, that lasts and that endures and that, and that reproduces. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this passage in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it begins with, so. That is uh, another word for therefore. If you're in the King James or New King James, it will say therefore, and, or in King James it says wherefore. And as I've told you many times, when you see the word therefore, you have to go and look and see what it is there for, because what he's saying everything coming after that we read tonight is built on what immediately preceded it. And so I want to look quickly, very quickly, the, the bulk of what we're looking at tonight is in a chapter 2, but very quickly what immediately preceded this we have to understand because he's saying in light of that we do this. And so look at verse 23. He says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Because all flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flower, fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Therefore... Put away all malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. So this is for those who are born again, who have been born again through the imperishable seed and the abiding and living word of God. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That it is through the proclamation, the preaching of the word of God, the gospel that he says that was preached to them that they received that has borne good fruit in their life. Therefore, now they're part of the kingdom of God. They've been born again. And then he leads them into, this is what the born again life looks like. This is what the life for the believer looks like. This is what it looks like when you've put your faith 
in Christ. And in, I want to break our passage this evening into three sections. The first is in verses 1 through 3. And this is an exchange that here he's saying should take place in our lives. An exchange that begins with us putting away. So put away, take off, do away with these things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Basically, he's saying do away with in your lives the things of the world. The, the, the ways and the thinking of the old man. Malice is evil thoughts, depravity, wickedness. Deceit is craftiness, subtlety. Remember, the serpent is the one that is subtle. He's saying, don't be like that anymore. He says to put away hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is acting like something other than what you really are. And slander and envy, wanting, desiring, being, being jealous of, of others and their possessions and their blessings. And he says, put away all of these things which were part of the old man. And this is something that we must all do. This is an imperative. This is a command for the born-again Christian. Put away the old life. Do, do away with it. Bury it. Paul will even use the language of mortify it. Put it to death. And this is something that we do. You need to understand this. We can't just sit around and wait for God to do this in our life. We must put these things away. So this is talking about sanctification. We're going to go into worship, but it starts here with putting away the things of our old life. And sanctification, this is really important that we get this, sanctification is and begins with an act of our will. Sanctification is an act of our will. But it's not an act out of our power or our will power. Let me say that again. Sanctification is an act of our will, but it's not an act of our own power, strength, or our willpower. We do it, we put these things to death in his power and in his might. The power that he gives us to do it. As we set ourselves and our minds and our wills to put away the things of the flesh, to put them to death in our lives, what we will find is that he is the one who gives us the power and the strength to do it. But if we're just sitting around like a bump on a log saying, God, I'm just waiting for you to, to deal with this sin in my life, no. We must put it to death. And as we do it, what we find is that he is the one that is giving us the power to do it. It's in his power. It's in his strength. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the weak. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. So the first part of this exchange here in these first three verses is first we must put these things away. We must get rid of the things of the old life, the, the thinking, the values, the desires of the flesh. We must put those to death in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he says, after you have put this away, then in verse 2 he says, like newborn infants, long for, desire earnestly, spiritual milk. And then the uh, New King James, NASB, other translations uh, add to this and, and make it clear that he's talking about the spiritual milk of the Word of God. That we should long for the pure Word of God like newborn infants. Newborn infants, they only want one thing. They only crave one thing. They want their mother and their mother's milk. That is what they desire. And he is saying, like newborn infants, we as believers, now born again by the incorruptible, imperishable seed of the Word of God, new creations, we should not long to feed and satisfy ourselves on the things of the world any longer, but we should long for the pure spiritual milk to be nourished by the Word of God. But notice here that you will not long for the Word of God until first you develop an appetite by stop feeding on the things of the world. If I am feeding my flesh on the things of the world, I will not have any appetite for the spiritual things of God. It's like we tell our children every evening at 4 p.m., don't eat the potato chips because you will what? Spoil your appetite. Every day my kids come home from school and they are starving and then they eat whatever junk they can find and then they're not hungry for dinner. They have spoiled their appetite and too many Christians have no desire for God, for the things of God, to seek God, to spend time in his word, to spend time in prayer because they have filled themselves and gorged themselves on things that do not nourish their soul whatsoever but they don't have an appetite any longer. This pure spiritual milk of the word of God. And here he says that it should taste good to you. It, should, it shouldn't be foreign to your palate. It should be what you desire because it is by this word that you were born again. Verse 3, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I know that I'm talking to the people here tonight who get this. The great irony about this whole series has been that I have been preaching, quote unquote, to the choir, if, as it were. You desire this by evidence by the fact that you are here on Sunday evenings. That is why you are here. Because you desire to know God, to be in his presence, to fellowship with his believers, to be around him and with him and to receive his word. But notice here that our appetite for God will grow in proportion to the things of the world and the flesh and the devil that we put away. So the more room you make in your life for the Lord, the more you will desire him and desire to be in his presence and desire to taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, this should not be something that is unfamiliar to your palate. Because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen. Isn't he good? 
Cindy so, so good. Man, I was just overwhelmed tonight as we were worshiping God, just his goodness. Oh, he's so good. What a joy, what a pleasure, what a privilege to be welcomed into his presence. Wow, man, he's so good. Have we tasted of his goodness? Once we have tasted of the goodness of God, we will not be satisfied with any subpar substitute. I recently had somebody give us a gift card, give me a gift card to Perry's Steakhouse. I'd never been to Perry's Steakhouse before. He gave us a gift card for $200. It's like, man, we're going to get to go there like five times. This is awesome. <laughs> we used that whole thing up in one visit, which made me realize this is why we don't go here ever. But let me tell you, that was the, and this isn't an advertisement for them, but that was the best steak I've ever had in my life. It melted in my mouth. It was unbelievable. Once I ate that, I just said, I don't ever want to eat any other steak again. I'll never taste, that is it. But the Lord, is, the Lord is like that to our souls. Once we've been in his presence, once we've, we've tasted of his goodness, there's nothing else that will satisfy us. We will be like newborn infants who crave their mother's milk. And so if I can summarize this, this first part of this passage, this exchange, that as he's going to go in to talk about pure worship and worshiping God and offering sacrifices of praise to God, we have to understand that it starts with us emptying ourselves of sin, of the world, of the flesh, of the devil, so that we can hunger for the things of God creating that in our lives so that our souls will be hungry so that we can be satisfied on him so that we can satisfy ourselves on him as we have tasted of Christ and crave to be satisfied and to be nourished by him and his word. Moving on to the second section, verse 4 through 10. He begins, to, he, he begins this section, verse 4, he says, as you come to him. As you come to him. So, so notice here the progression. Notice here the logic. You're born again by the imperishable seed, the word of God. We are like newborn infants. In the power of his spirit, we put to death the works of the flesh creating in our lives room to be hungry for the things of God. Now we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we desire him to be nourished by him, to be fed by him. So what do we do? We go to him, right? That's what he says, verse four, as you come to him. So we seek the Lord. We seek after him. We seek to be nourished by him. 
We come into his presence. We, we come to gatherings like this. We gather on Sunday morning. We gather here on Sunday evenings. We gather in community groups. We, we go to King's Bible Institute. We seek him and go to him to satisfy our spiritual hunger. And so we come to him. We seek Christ. We seek after him. We seek to know him. Which Jesus says in John 17, that knowing God is what? Eternal life. So we we seek after him. He, He is what we are looking for. He is what we are longing for. His word is what supplies us. His word is what sustains us. His presence is where we find joy in the fullness of joy. And so we'll rearrange our life. We'll rearrange our schedules. We'll orient everything around setting it up so that we can be with him and in his presence. And he says that as you do that, as you come to him, and then he parenthetically describes him, he describes Christ. As you come to him, Christ, the living stone, He has been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. Jesus rejected by men, but precious to God and chosen, this living stone as he calls him. And now as we come to him, this living stone, verse 5, he says, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house. And then he's going to talk about Jesus being the cornerstone. The cornerstone upon which this spiritual house is being built. So Jesus is the the cornerstone. Jesus is what our faith and our lives are to be built upon. The cornerstone is the first stone that's laid down in any building as it was built in those days. And they picked the biggest, the strongest, the best to be that cornerstone. It bears the load of the entire building and of the foundation. Christ is to be that for our lives. He is to be that for our faith. But we, he says, as we come to him, we are now transformed as living stones and that he places us as he sees fit And he builds us up into a temple, a holy place, a gathering for him. A place when we gather that we are like a living temple. If you'll flip over with me, stay here in 1 Peter 2, but flip over with me to Ephesians 2. Paul uses some very similar language here in Ephesians chapter 2. Here he's talking in in Ephesians 2 about the fact that in Christ, God is reconciling all people to himself, the world to himself. So it's not only, God is not only the Savior and the Messiah of the Jews, but he's also the Savior and the Messiah of the Gentiles of the whole world. And that we as Gentiles are now brought into the covenant that God made with Abraham to bless the world and the nations. 
So verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built. So here's this language again of building a temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that God does not dwell in a physical building, in a physical temple, in a physical location anymore. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was, the the curtain was torn in two. God does not dwell in a building. God dwells in a people. In a people. So that, and this is talked about in two ways in the New Testament. One in a personal way. that, That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies, our physical bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which should blow our minds. That the living God, the creator of the whole universe, lives in us, his people, by his spirit. But the part that Paul is talking about here and then Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 2 is not individually, but the, the you here is plural. Meaning that he's talking about we are the temple of God now. We collectively When we come together as living stones, when we gather for worship, God has built a temple that he will come and dwell in. His presence with us to meet with us. And that we are those living stones that make up that temple where true worship can take place. We are now those living stones And he has built us up and he transforms us into that as we come and we seek him. Verse 5, he says that you yourselves are like living stones. Back in 1 Peter 2. To be a holy priesthood. Now next week I'm going to focus more in on the priesthood of the believer But he says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We know that in the, under the old covenant, there were animal sacrifices that took place. I don't know if you've noticed, we don't do that here. You know, that's not part of our worship anymore. That we offer, but there are sacrifices to be offered to God. And the sacrifices that are to be offered to him are spiritual sacrifices of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says that through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So we are built up into a holy temple. When we gather together for worship, he meets with us. His spirit fills this temple and we are to offer sacrifices to him, the fruit of our lips the praise that should proceed from our mouth. This is why we sing songs of praise. This is why we worship God. And you, and I'll focus more on this next week, you are a priest and are are commissioned 
by God as a priest to offer sacrifices of praise to him. So that when we gather for worship, we're not just coming because we are in need, though we may be in need, we are a needy people. But when we gather for worship, we should also gather with the mentality, I am a priest going to work today. I am going to offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise to God. I have a, a job to do to worship God. Jesus uh, says that if the, the little ones, if, if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out and praise him. He will be worshipped. He is worthy of worship. And note, I want to draw your attention here to, again, something here in this passage. We offer spiritual sacrifices. These spiritual sacrifices are the fruit of our mouth, our lips that give praise to God. But here he says here, this is so important, that these sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So much of what we've seen as we've worked through uh, this series is we've, we've looked at times where people offered worship to God that was unacceptable. You'll remember Cain and Abel. The first time we have worship in the Bible, we have someone offering a sacrifice that was unacceptable to God. We saw uh, the, the example of I don't know if we did or not, but we we saw the example of Aaron's sons that offered strange fire. I don't remember if we looked at that. And I guarantee you, none of you will remember as well. But there's there's the the Aaron's sons, the priests, they offered up an offering that they should not have offered to the Lord. And their offering was rejected and, and they paid the price with their lives. Unacceptable worship. So what we've seen all through this series is what we, and what we've endeavored to do is to teach us on what is acceptable to God, that our worship is acceptable to him. But notice here that what makes our worship acceptable to God is that it is offered through Jesus Christ. Because the truth of the matter is, no matter how pure our hearts No matter how pure our worship may be, it will never be pure enough for a God who is holy. Whatever offering I bring to the Lord will be tainted with sin, will be defiled by my own sinful flesh, whatever offering I bring. However pure it might be, however well-intentioned it might be, It will never be pure enough for God. It will be defiled by my sin and my indwelling sin. But, but through Christ, through Christ, our worship is acceptable to God. And as we offer a praise and worship through Christ to God, he accepts our worship and our praises. So as sinful as we may be, as tainted as we may be, as compromised as we may be, when we come into his house and offer him praises through Christ, our worship is accepted by him. That is such glorious good news. Christ is our mediator. 
Christ is our intercessor. And he is ever at the right hand of God making intercession on our behalf. So we can therefore all draw near to him in faith with confidence that our worship will be accepted by him. Though I might not know and worship the exact right way and, and though I may be in error in this way or that way, because we're all fallen, none of us is perfect. Even our, our, even our concepts about God at times are wrong. But if we offer them in faith through Christ the Son, our worship is acceptable to God. And so we can come into worship and boldly approach the throne of grace, not on our own efforts or merits, but solely on the merits of Christ. And through Christ, he has made a way for us to even participate in the sound and the song of creation as priests offering up praises to God. Notice here as the passage continues into verse 9. But let, let, I want to I show you something here in verse 4 again. As you come to him, again Christ, and it describes him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... So Christ has been rejected by the world, but God, but, but, but chosen by God, and he is precious to him. But then notice the parallel he draws in verse 9. But you are a chosen race or chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, right? We, we, before Christ, we're all alone in the world. Before Christ, we're, we're just scattered. We're, we're sheep without a shepherd. We're all on our own without Christ. But now in Christ, we are a people. We have an identity. We have a family. We prayed about that tonight, the family of God. We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. We once have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice the parallels he's drawing here in this passage. Christ rejected by the world, but chosen by God and precious to him. And us rejected by the world, but chosen by God and precious to him. Chosen to be his people. Chosen to be a royal priesthood. Chosen to be a holy nation. A people for his own possession. Though the world may reject us, though the world may call us foolish, though the world may look at us and, and us in our worship and us singing our praises, and they look at that and they say, what are these people doing? They are out of their minds. We have been rejected by the world, but we have been accepted and chosen by God. Chosen by God to be 
his own possession. He moves on and he goes on to say he has chosen us as his possession that for this purpose that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He chose us to worship him. He chose us to proclaim his praises, to exalt him, to offer him spiritual sacrifices. This is what we were chosen for, for worship, to worship God. Now moving on here to this third section, verse 11 and 12. He moves back into how we live. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Remember, we are in the world, but we're not part of the world. We've been rejected by the world. We now live in a place that is not our home. We're citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, yet we are still here in this world. He reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles. And as sojourners and exiles, we should, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, the sinful desires that we still all have. But he says that these sinful desires wage war against your soul. Wow, is that not a clarifying statement? That the desires of the flesh that we have, that we would desire to do and to put into practice, he says, watch out, because those things are a very cancer that would destroy your very soul. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't, don't live in such a way as to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Live in such a way that would glorify God, as he says, so that when they speak evil against you, or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here, here's what I want you to see as he, he draws us back into how we live. The, this, the, this flow of this passage, this progression of this passage, that how we live, as, we, as he started this here, putting away in the first section, putting away the, the sinful desires of the flesh, it produces in us a hunger a thirst for righteousness, a thirst for God. That this leads us into this desire for God. It leads us into pure worship of God. It leads us to seek God. It leads us into his presence where we worship him. And that as we worship him, we are transformed into his own people, a holy people, a holy nation. And then this worship leads us into how we live our lives. And how we live our lives as holy people, well, what does that lead us into? It leads us into desiring God and wanting to seek him, which then leads us into worship, which then leads us into him transforming us, which then leads us back into how we live, which then leads us back into his presence, that this is a upward spiral leading us up into the presence of God and fellowship with God. That how we live our lives fuels our worship. 
So if I will make space for God, if I will make room for God in my life, I will hunger after God and I will pursue and I will seek him. And when I seek him, I will find him. And when I find him, I will be transformed by him. And when I'm transformed by him, it transforms how I live my life. And then as I live my life, it it pushes me, it presses me again to want to be in his presence where I am transformed again. And so the Christian life is this upward progression where how I live my life leads me into worship and how I worship leads me into how I live my life. And this this onward transformation that worship becomes an integral part of that. And it lifts us up into holiness and into deeper communion with God. So that over the course of your Christian life, a profound transformation will take place. So that living for Christ becomes the fuel of our worship and our worship becomes the fuel of our living for Christ. And so that if you remove from your life worship, you will not be able to live for Christ. And so if you will not gather with God's people for worship, you will not be able to live for him. Because in his presence, we receive from him. We are nourished by him. We are transformed by him. And so worship and gathering for worship becomes not not some sort of optional piece to the Christian life. Not just something that we can add on if, you know, we just want to, you know, be one of those really super spiritual Christians. Know that to, to, to be a Christian is to put away these things, which gives me an appetite for Christ, which leads me to gather with God's people, craving his word, craving his presence. And when I experience him, when I receive his word, when I encounter his presence in worship, I walk out the door with a fresh fire and a fresh zeal to live for him. And as I live for him in this world, it makes me just want to get back into his presence and back into his work. And so it is this constant life-giving component of the Christian life. And so that's the part of this message that I really wanted you to see. The, the progression here. That how we live create, will, will either create a desire for Christ or it will squelch that desire for Christ. And it's, it's on us to take the steps necessary to make that space and that room in our life. And when we do that, we have to say all glory to Christ. Because he is the one who it is through and it is by and it is for and it is all because of his power and all because of his grace. He is the one that takes our worship that we offer to him and he is the one that makes it acceptable to God as he is our mediator and our intercessor. And he is the one that, that makes us a special people, has called us a special people unto himself. And so let me just encourage you to make Again, to make gathering with God's people for worship a priority 
in your life. It is absolutely essential to your walk with him. And let me also encourage you that when you gather, to gather as those who are longing, like an infant longing for that pure spiritual milk. And so to prepare your heart, even when uh, you you begin to to think about the week, what, what can I do this week that would cause me to long for Christ more and to be satisfied with the world less? What are the things maybe in our lives that we have allowed to come in and to spoil our appetite for the things of God? That we have been feeding on and feasting on that provide no nourishment whatsoever, but that make us full and apathetic towards the things of God. Would the Lord deal, I pray the Lord would deal with us even right now and highlight for us something in our lives that we could, as Peter says, lay aside, put aside. Not that it's an evil thing. I'm not saying that everything in our life that we might lay aside is sinful or evil, but maybe there are things in our lives that they've just become a distraction to us. And that for this next coming week, we could say, I'm going to lay that aside so that I can pursue Christ. I'm going to lay that aside so that I can seek his face. I'm going to lay this aside so that I can hunger for him more and then pursue him and see how he will start this work of transformation in our lives.